Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. With everything happening this quarter, we thought now would be a perfect time to take a look at how current events are impacting valuations. Joining me remotely from across the country are Chris Merchant and Andrew Elpestein, both from our financial markets practice. We had a great conversation with this team back in April, and I'm looking forward to another informative discussion on what's been happening in the markets since we last spoke. Chris and Andrew, thank you so much for joining me for a conversation on valuation and markets and looking forward to hearing what's happened in the past three months. And Chris, I had you on um, for a very popular episode back in April talking about the March 31 markets and I know a lot has happened. So as we sit here at June 29th, very interested to hear what companies should be thinking about as they look at their quarter end valuations. So Chris, maybe just to kick things off, can you give us sort of a backdrop of where we are right now? Sure. Uh, thanks, Heather. And uh, nice to be back. Uh, it sure, sure seems like a long time ago um, that uh, that we were having this conversation. Um, and obviously, a lot's happened uh, over the past past three months. Um, so maybe we'll cover off a couple, couple of key points. Um, I guess the first is just the role of the Federal Reserve as a backstop. Um, from where we were three months ago to now, we've seen a rally in, in pricing really across a number of different asset classes. And, and a large part of that is due to just the role, the role of the Fed, uh, the number of programs they've created in the market, and, and really this idea that these Federal uh, Reserve programs are acting as a floor, whether that be for corporate debt, structured products, and in a number of different areas. You know, we saw just, uh, just recently over the weekend, uh, the Fed announced their uh, first list of companies for which they're actually buying corporate debt, uh, you know, upwards of $429 million. So that's something we expect to continue. And I think the key message is while, while some of the Fed programs haven't seen the uptick that you expected to date, the market knows they're there. I guess the second trend is just uncertainty uh, around forecasting what's going to happen in the environment. V-shaped, U-shaped, W-shaped. Really, I don't know that anybody has good consensus on what's going to happen in the economic environment right now. We saw a recent surprise in uh, retail sales. We saw a surprise in consumer spending, and and obviously that's all happening and overlapping with uh, you know another spike in outbreak around uh, COVID nineteen uh, spread in, in across the country. So I think that the main message there is it was always hard to predict the future in the economy, and it's got gotten even harder. And a lot of models and pricing are might need to be recalibrated and potentially price in that uncertainty, which I guess brings to the last point, which is around just this balance of credit and liquidity and, and uncertainty in pricing. And while we've seen a, a, a trend in really a, a tightening of credit spreads, equity markets have rallied to almost back to where they were prior to the outbreak of COVID-19 three months ago. Um, spreads have really come in across the fixed income universe. There remains considerable uncertainty around credit risk, around what happens at the end of the year, obviously election coming around the corner. And a number of people have started to raise um, this concern around how do you balance the, the pricing uh, versus the fundamentals and really questioning whether the fundamentals support the, the valuations that we're starting to see or the, the increase in valuations and the tightening in credit spread. So that's certainly something to look forward to. Yeah. And Chris, I know we're going to get into some specifics on individual markets, but just a question for you, because you talked about the Federal Reserve as sort of a backstop. And I recently had um, Chris Benko and Rohit Kumar on my quarterly webcast talking about the economy and the Federal Reserve. But they were talking about 
the impact of the public policy programs and all of this different funding that we've seen? And how do you feel that that's impacting the markets right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to tell. Take consumer credit, for an example. Uh, there were several articles over the weekend where uh, the theme was institutions that are lending credit to consumers are having a really hard time figuring out what's core credit risk. You're starting to hear that, for example, in some parts of the economy, the unemployment benefits are actually greater than what people were making through their income. And that's causing a lot of noise in the process around sorting through a forbearance, sorting through credit risk. Um, and I think that's just one example of where the Federal, you know, the federal Reserve policies and the government policies can um, impact the markets. All right, great. Well, why don't we get into then some of the specifics? And, you know, one of the things we've talked about on past podcasts is I had Andreas Ohl on talking about impairment a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things he shared was that companies are struggling right now because maybe the equity markets are disconnected from what they're seeing from a business perspective. And, and Chris, you touched on that, the sort of disconnect from the fundamentals. So then, Andrew, sort of going with that point, focusing in on real estate, what are we seeing from a real estate valuation perspective? Yeah, Heather, real similar feedback as what you heard from Andreas and Chris. Uh, we're seeing folks challenged with with assumptions and, and re-underwriting the assets. Uh, property fundamentals are really being closely looked at. Um, what happened in Q2 was there was a huge focus on rent collections and rent relief, which was widely in the news and in the media. And that became one of the inputs into valuation assumptions that folks are thinking about. Chris also talked about the timing and pace of the recovery. That's another element that folks are struggling with. And then finally, you know, they have to think about operating expenses, which are changing in this environment with additional cleaning and maintenance and security, and also exacerbated by the potential for higher real estate taxes with some of the fiscal distress and, and stress that many jurisdictions are under. What's interesting though, Heather, is that there's a little bit of a bifurcation between some property types that are less impacted, like industrial, that's really the beneficiary of a lot of e-commerce, and multifamily, which has a more stable uh, tenant pool, uh, versus some of the more impacted property types like hotel and, and discretionary retail, where as we've all seen, there's been significant disruption. And for those property types, it's just that much harder to predict our cash flows. And, and certainly we've seen very few transactions in, in particularly retail and hospitality, making the valuation process that much more difficult. Uh, maybe a final point, uh, Heather, just on the capital markets. Chris talked about the uh, recovery in public equities. Uh, we've seen the same in the public REIT space. Interestingly, the public REITs have not recovered as much as the broader REIT markets. So that's certainly something that folks are watching because the suggestion there is that uh, there's more uncertainty and and unknowns within real estate relative to other sectors. And so it just adds to some of the um, the challenges that folks are having uh, as they uh, start to work on their Q2 valuations. So, uh, Andrew, just a question for you. You mentioned rent concessions, and that's definitely something that we've had past podcasts talk about, the accounting for rent concessions. But you know, the combination of rent concessions, you talked about all the additional cleaning costs, which is, you know, normally on, on the landlord, um, maybe uncertainty about lease renewals and, and things like that. With so much uncertainty then, how are you seeing people incorporate that into their valuations? Yeah, really good question. 
we've seen folks really think about the cash flows as one element and then their capital markets assumptions as another element. And the capital markets assumptions in, in commercial real estate are cap rates and discount rates. And so when folks have looked at their cash flows, they've really looked at some of the near-term uh, revenue impact. So they know that leasing will be delayed. They expect that rent growth will be slowed. They expect that they will uh, likely have some challenges in collecting rent. So they're baking some of that in, particularly in the initial years of their cash flow projections. Uh, and this goes back to the consideration of the different recoveries and how long will it take for uh, for the economy and tenants to get back on their feet. So we've certainly seen, particularly the initial years of the cash flow forecast being adjusted. Um, and then as we talked about previously, expenses are being recalibrated based on new information. So you've got those elements. And then on the capital market side, you know, we talked about, you know, relatively few transactions and, and those that are happening are generally in industrial and multifamily. Uh, we've seen very little capital market changes in industrial multifamily, but folks are looking a lot closer at retail and lodging um, and even office to a certain extent and starting to make some upward adjustments on on both their cap and discount rate assumptions. So uh, there's, there's a number of things to think about for sure. Each property has got a slightly different story, but that's how folks are trying to kind of bifurcate the process. All right, that's helpful. So then, Chris, let's turn to another part of the market. And you touched briefly in your opening comments about what's going on with the public equity markets. But I know we've gotten a lot of questions around valuations in private equity. So maybe how do you connect those two markets first? So in terms of how they relate to each other, and then what are some of the considerations? I guess one of the the ongoing challenges when looking at private equity investments is always this relationship between public company comparables and a private company um, and an investment in a private company. And you know, many uh, organizations start with the public publicly traded comparables and, and use that as a as a basis for for valuing this the, the private entities. And there's a lot of volatility in March, and we saw rallying since March, and and now now you have this continued challenge of. How do you? What adjustments do you make to the observable information around a comparable company that may or may not be exactly the same as as your the company that you're investing in? And and how do you how do you think about that adjustment? It, is it bigger or smaller? You know, what's the relationship? What's changed over time? That's not a new challenge, but it's one that's certainly exacerbated by the the disruption in the market. I think it's also important to pick up on a couple of things Andrew said around the considerations in the real estate space. Because they're really relevant in the private equity space as well. One is really focus on the fundamentals. So understanding the risk of the business, understanding cash flows, understanding performance, looking at what's happened through the first six months of the year and understanding is that, is that a one-time disruption or, or is that a one-time gain? And, or is that really a, a fundamental change to the business? And really what we're seeing organizations do is spend time stratifying the population of investments. Try to identify which companies are fundamentally changed as a result of the, the COVID-19 outbreak and the change to, say, the working environment versus which companies might have seen just a temporary pause in, in revenue or earnings and, and are likely to see some recovery. And it's obvious from speaking around the market, you know, others around the market that there's some clear winners and, you know, winners and losers in the sense of there are some companies who have seen an uptick in business and they expect that to continue to grow. And Andrew mentioned e-commerce and you know that's one example. And there's some others that I think are are really having to go back and rethink their business model. And so 
when you go back to your, your question, Heather, about the relationship between the public companies and the, and the private companies, I think it's also important to, to just understand what's, what's happening to the fundamentals of the business. Is the business model changing? Has it been permanently disrupted? And to what extent do you need to um, adjust financial data from those underlying portfolio companies to reflect a longer term view of, of performance? Yeah. And, you know, question, and you touched on this a little, but maybe you can help me with is you made the point that the public markets, we've seen some disconnect with the fundamentals and maybe some of the valuations might not necessarily make sense with what's actually going on from a business perspective for some companies. And now, you know, if I'm looking at a private company and I'm focused on cash flows and other fundamentals there, how are companies thinking about working in some premium or adjustment that you might be seeing in the public markets to these private company valuations? The answer varies. It varies based upon the valuation approach and the type of company. So, for example, in some cases, you know, if you're using a uh, a guideline public company approach where where you look at comparables and you determine a multiple, some cases companies are adjusting those multiples um, or adjusting the performance metric to reflect the the differences between those public and private comps. Um, in other cases, we're seeing companies switch comp sets. You know, maybe maybe one of the portfolio companies uh, switched their business model, and, and they used to be all retail, and now they've gone e-commerce, and maybe an e-commerce comparable set is, is actually a better representation of of their business model on a go forward basis. Andrew mentioned cash flows. Again, w- what have we seen? We've seen adjustments to discount rates are, uh, applied to those cash flows, and we've seen adjustments to the cash flows themselves. So. There's not really a one-size-fits-all approach. I think what's important is going back and looking at the valuation approach, looking at the fundamentals of the business, and and looking at that observable data that you have in the public company, the, the public markets, and and you know following the process that you've laid out, uh, you know, your valuation process for for uh, making any of those adjustments. What's been interesting uh, in the real estate space is a lot of folks have pointed back when they've looked at the relationship between private real estate values and public real estate values, they've looked back at previous recessions and they've looked at the amount of time it's taken for private real estate to kind of adjust values relative to the public markets. And we've seen private real estate take a little bit longer. And that's been part of market participants kind of rationale to just be a little bit more watchful and aggregate a little bit more data before they make uh, their marks. Um, that's why Q2 is just so interesting because we've now got a few months of data and the public markets have have recovered. So we're almost seeing, whereas the public markets adjusted really quickly at the outset, the private real estate markets took a little bit longer and they're almost converging now where public's mm-hmm. kind of recovering a little bit and, and, and the private's starting to maybe absorb the impact of some of these, you know, factual changes that they're seeing at the property and their fundamentals. So then from what both of you are saying, Chris, you made a point about process. So maybe it's important to continue to follow your process, but you definitely don't want to be on autopilot when you're doing these valuations because there's so many changing factors to think about. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, changing your process, your methodology in the middle of a crisis is probably not the uh, the, the wisest approach. But conversely, um, you, you want to have a lot of rigor around whatever process you're following. And it probably you know, times of disruption probably warrant further uh, evaluation and, and, and governance and protocols. And then I think it's good to step back interperiod and say, is there something we need to change? Uh, it doesn't mean you need to be stagnant. Going through a thoughtful approach to say, are, is there anything new? Is there anything different? And one example I give is that's come up in private equity is some companies aren't able to produce financial statements. So if your process relied on financial company data that, that you no longer have access access to, well, 
you have to do something else. So what is that something else? So that's just one example where it's probably okay to change a process, but you want to be thoughtful about it. Right. And to your point, have the same rigor over the new process, if not more, because it is new and changed from what you were doing before. All right. Well, then why don't we turn to an, another type of product? Um, you know, We've talked about this a little in the past, and this would be around various structured products and what we're seeing in the credit markets and those, those valuations. Yeah. And I'll, I'll start off covering off some structured product and some consumer credit and maybe hand it over to uh, Andrew to cover off on some real estate credit related matters. Um, you know, Heather, at the beginning, we spoke about trying to understand fundamentals. And if you look at what's happened in the residential and the consumer space, I think it, it really highlights the point. So there was a huge wave of forbearance requests at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak um, as a result of the CARES Act, uh, particularly in the mortgage market. But what started to happen is servicers started to see that borrowers were requesting forbearance, but continuing to make payments. And that's actually continued. And so now you have this period where borrowers requested forbearance, continue to make payments, and now many of those terms are starting to come up where they had three or four months of forbearance and, and we're starting to, to, to have the question, well, what happens next? Are they going to be able to make a lump sum payment? Are they going to be able to continue paying? And so it's, it's that type of activity that's causing a lot of uncertainty in the, in the residential and the commercial credit market. In the structured product market, we're seeing that play itself out in, in a couple of interesting ways. One, there's been a huge rally in, in issuance in the securitization market. So we've seen a number of new mortgage deals come to market. I think what's, what we're also seeing is there's a lot of, we're starting to see situations where deal triggers that are based upon delinquency are starting to be impacted by these forbearance events. So if somebody files for forbearance, continues to make a payment, are they counted as delinquent or not delinquent? And in many cases, that actually changes cash flows and deals. So, so there's an interplay between what's happening with these underlying borrowers and how it's working its way into the structured product space. I guess the theme is, you know, identifying the signal from the noise in terms of what's underlying credit risk. I guess the last piece before we turn over to real estate is just we've seen a lot of cash on the sidelines that's looking for places to invest. Yields are about as low as they've ever been, and people are looking for places to put their money. And so that's partly what's helped drive that that market for securitization and consumer credit. Um, and, and in a way, we're seeing the same thing in the corporate credit space as well. I don't know, Andrew, if you're seeing anything different in, in real estate credit. Similar themes, Chris. I talked earlier about you know retail and hospitality being most impacted. That's the same same trends in the lending markets. We have seen uh, real estate lenders really tighten up on on loan to values and other covenants. Uh, we've seen uh, floors built in, given how low treasuries are. Some of that is just starting to ease a little bit. But in most cases, it's the right property type, the right borrower that, that has a track record and a relationship. So it's going to be really interesting to watch because it, it further exacerbates the haves and have-nots with the property types that are a little bit more stable, have a little bit more visibility, and are viewed more favorably. But still, you know, when we look across the real estate spectrum, um, there is a lot of op optimism just because the amount of capital that is on the sidelines uh, looking for you know, relative yield. Um, and both we, we expect to see real estate debt and equity be the beneficiary as, as the kind of months go on and, and folks get a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. And I guess just maybe the, the last point there, we're seeing that in the corporate credit space as well, whether you talk about private lending, private bonds, private loans, um, even some, some public bonds. While you have the Fed as a backstop out there for certain public debt, there's a growing concern that some of the rallying and pricing is masking fundamental credit risk. 
and we know that there are certain businesses that have recently filed for bankruptcy. Um, there's concern that others will follow for bankruptcy. There's concern even in the municipal space when you think about the potential impact to state and local governments or project uh, type financing. So uh, an area certainly to watch is just what's the long-term fundamental credit risk for some of these organizations despite the rallying uh, in, in the, the debt pricing. So definitely a lot to think about. And sounds like a third quarter will be another interesting quarter um, and more to talk about at September 30th. Before we wrap up today, though, I wanted to turn to the SEC. And I know that there have been some new rules proposed around valuation. So, Chris, just for the benefit of our audience, can you give us an overview of the proposal? Sure. So, and really what's the first SEC valuation material in, in quite some time, um, the Division of Investment Management released a piece that uh, recently proposed Rule 285, which in short um, is focused on BDCs and RICs, and, and it's really focused on what they're terming modernization of the valuation process. Uh, there's really two, two key areas. Um, one is good faith determination of fair value. And, and the second one is around responsibilities of the board. And this piece is, uh, the, the rule is largely about one, how do you, how, how does a board or uh, somebody who the board assigns the responsibility to uh, go through the valuation process? Documentation of inputs and assumptions and judgments, methodology, record keeping, reporting. There's also some d- description on how to identify key risks uh, in the valuation process, uh, some requirements around the periodicity of reporting. Um, and it seems like the overall goal is just to, to more formally um, and enhance the, the framework for the board actively demonstrating their responsibilities in the valuation process. Uh, the comment letter period wraps up at the end of July, uh, so we have just uh, just under another month of of period before comment. And you know we've had conversations with a number of, of folks in the market on the topic, and there's a, a couple of key areas to pay attention to, including um, uh, just the, the level of detail and the expectations around reporting and and monitoring and documentation, as well as some specific areas around the definition of, of what constitutes a readily determinable fair value. And, and this rule actually goes, goes ahead and defines that term. So there's a number of different pieces to this. Uh, the rule rescinds ASR 113 and 118. And, um, you know, we just encourage everybody to take a look, whether you're directly uh, in the scope or not, because it's, it's the first piece the SEC's put out in quite some time. So, Chris, that's a good segue to a question I have. Many of our listeners are not valuation professionals. So when you reference BDCs and RICs, what are you referring to? <laughs> BDCs being business development corporations and, and RICs being registered investment companies. And then, Chris, does this apply only to those entities or this would apply more broadly? I mean, if it's passed, obviously. No yeah, if it's passed while they're directly in scope. Um, I mean, those are the targeted entities. From a best practice perspective, I think it's it's probably safe to, that everybody, particularly in the fund management world, asset management world, take a look at it, understand the expectations from a governance, from a board oversight perspective, from a valuation committee perspective, because my sense is that if it's passed, uh, it serves as kind of a stake in the ground around expectations of delegation of authority. Yep, it's definitely helpful to share. And as you mentioned, the comment letter period ends July 21. So for any listeners out there, would encourage you to check it out, even if there's just one part of the proposal that you want to comment on. So um, with that, Chris and Andrew, almost ready to wrap things up. And one of the things that's new, I think, Chris, since last time you've been on the podcast, is we always try to wrap up now with some silver lining from the COVID crisis. Chris, I will start with you. Well, yeah, as we were speaking about before we started recording, I think the silver lining is is the ability to, to work almost from anywhere at least anywhere that you have internet access, which nowadays is almost anywhere. So 
we like to travel and we're going to try to take advantage of that. Excellent. And how about you, Andrew? Well, I think for the first time, I really got to see what my what my kids were studying in a lot of detail. And um, it, it scared me a little bit. I realized how long ago it was that uh, I was doing algebra and things like that. But uh, on a personal level, I've just been reading a little bit more than I used to. I think the additional time has allowed for you know many of us to you know revert to hobbies that we so badly wanted to reinvest in. So that's been great. Yes, excellent. I might have to get some book recommendations from you. So on that note, Chris and Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Um, great information as always. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. That does it for today. Thanks for tuning in. We do also have one more episode releasing this week. Don't miss the latest installment in our What's Next series. Then meet me back here next Tuesday as we talk about an always popular topic, leases. This time we'll focus on impairment and abandonment. So that you never miss any of our episodes, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. So write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com or to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.